Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook, Leadership for Organizational Growth. In it, you'll explore various leadership styles and theories of leadership, as well as best practices for developing the specific leadership skills you need to drive revenue growth. Be sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod336. We hope you enjoyed this conversation between Elizabeth Frederick and Al Sini. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I am so looking forward to introducing our listeners to today's guest. I'm speaking with the managing partner of BCAT Partners, LLC, which uses a brand and culture alignment toolkit to drive employee engagement and performance. He's a prolific speaker and facilitator, and he also hosts a weekly show on RBN TV called CEO Chat, which is actually how we got to know him. He has extensive experience in project management and systems integration at tiny little organizations you might never have heard of, like Apple, GE, NBC Universal, and he's based in the New York area. Welcome to the show, Al Sini. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's great to be here. I am just so glad to welcome you to the show, and I look forward to our conversation today. But before we jump into anything kind of specific, I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. I know you're not just the bullets on your bio. Sure. And I appreciate the opportunity really to meet everybody who, uh, who listens to your podcast. And, uh, and, uh, you know, this is, um, I guess what I want to say is that uh, a lot of people wonder or ask me if I'm a motivational speaker, and I'm definitely not (laughs) a motivational speaker, but I do speak on the subject of human motivation. And that really is kind of the point of everything we do these days at uh, BCAT partners. There's uh, an old, um, an old saying that uh, the only way really to get anything done is to make sure that people actually want to do it. Uh, Mm -hmm. I know from my experience as a project manager that if people on a project aren't motivated to actually commit to the project, then it won't make any difference how often you shame them and blame them or how many Gantt charts you show them or how much project management (laughs) overhead you impose on them. If they don't want to do it, they're not going to do it and it isn't going to get done. So Everything about brand and culture alignment, which, you know, which is a great topic for me anyway, is about <laughs> tuning people into the purpose that makes their work feel like, to them anyway, that it has meaning and that it makes a difference in the world. And uh, it's a simple three-step process, and um, I'm, I'm thrilled at this opportunity to share it with your audience. Wonderful. Um, you, you touched on the fact that you discovered this through project management. And I think anybody who's ever managed a project, whether that was a big part of your job or just a thing you were doing on the side, can recognize that um, anytime you've got more than one person involved, you have complexity. <laughs> and that that level of alignment and purpose, um, motivation, it, it all is a big component of what makes a project work or not work or what makes it feel like you are, you know, constantly pushing that boulder up a hill versus you've got a team all all working together. I'd love it if you could talk about maybe some specific examples or, or if you have a story of really how that how you made that discovery, whether whether it was just a natural outgrowth of the work that you did or whether there was maybe a specific situation where you realized how important this was. That's that's a that's a great question, and uh, you mentioned in the in your introduction that I did a little bit of work for a relatively little known company called General Electric. GE is uh, does not stand for generous, so all the work I did for General Electric was done as a consultant, as a as a kind of a 
project manager for hire. And I managed a whole series of projects for them. And some of them were pretty demanding. And uh, all, well, they were all pretty demanding. And every year, my number would float up to the top of a spreadsheet. A vice president would take a look at my number and say, well, we have to get rid of this guy. He costs too much. And every year, some other vice president would say, well, wait a minute, not that guy. We, we have him doing these things for us. And he has a way of doing them that I can't really quite explain. But anyway, when he does them, they get done in half the time and they cost a quarter as much as all our other projects do. So I always survived the GE scythe, the thing that would just sort of the sickle that would cut you off. <laughs> and um, and the reason why was because I didn't manage projects the way everybody else did. So, so here's what I did differently. Um, a typical approach to project management is to use a tool, let's say like Microsoft Project, to try to <laughs> deconstruct the work that needs to be done and break it all down so that even a moron could do it. And then insult the intelligence of the people on the project by presenting these Gantt charts to them to tell them how the work should be done, even though that, in fact, is the work they do every day. And what you get out of that are typically three or 4% of the people in your project team doing 99% of the work because they're so overworked, because they're so critical, because they have other things to do too. Uh, the project takes longer to get done and everybody's unhappy. So, so I don't, I never did it that way. What, what I did and as a project manager was to try to sell everybody on the idea of what it was we were building together to get them engaged in it and to make sure that everybody on the project team had a voice and offered suggestions on how to get the project done in a way that would actually get us the results we wanted. So if I had a gift at all, it was that in my projects, 85 or 90% of the people did the work, not just three or 4%. And a lot of those people are people that nobody ever really expected very much from. And in the final analysis, they performed very heroically and did some amazing things, all of which contributed to one success after another. And it was never me doing it. It was always them doing it. And they always knew that they were going to get the credit for it and that I was going to take any of it. And uh, so I, I took that learning. I basically took that learning and I, I was what you might call an unconscious competent. I knew how to do that. And I had a system for that. And it was the reason why they kept me around, even though they didn't really understand my system. Believe me, it's very different from Six Sigma, which is GE's kind of hallmark methodology for getting things done. Uh, I, my, my approach was much more human and, uh, that's why it works so well. So project after project, what I was learning is that there's a way you manage people that gets them so connected and so fired up by the purpose of the project that they're willing to commit themselves to it in ways that you can't predict or ways that you wouldn't expect. Uh, and uh, when you do that, you end up getting raging success. So everything about brand and culture alignment today was learned in lesson after lesson managing projects for General Electric. And, and, the, and the work I did, in fact, was at General Electric's um, GE at the time owned NBC. And it was before NBC merged with Universal. And uh, so all the work I did was with the National Broadcasting Company. And a lot of the work was creatives in projects, which is an interesting challenge unto itself. And my approach, their approach would never have worked with creatives. You just can't manage creatives the way you manage engineers. And a lot of the people on my teams were creatives and they needed to be managed that way. And, and brand and culture alignment is about taking people, whether they're engineering oriented or creatively oriented and getting them to fall in love with the results so that they do their best work on their best day. Absolutely. There's, there's so much there that I want to unpack and I'm going to try to avoid getting sucked into that last thing you said, because I think we can, we can come back to it. <laughs> sure. But this idea of, 
how often we we decide to break things down. And like you said, we're treating people like idiots. And everybody knows that sense of being condescended to. And I don't think there's anybody on the planet who enjoys it. <laughs> and that feeling in a work context of this person is coming in, maybe they're from inside my organization, maybe they're brought in from outside and they have, you know, they did their little study, they did their little research, they didn't consult with me or maybe they did, but you know, they, they asked me five questions and then they came back and told me exactly what I need to do. And I know it's wrong. I know there's a better way to do it. I know there's a more efficient way to do it, but you broke it down in steps that a third grader or a brand new intern could follow. And that doesn't exactly compel engagement. And so uh, it's just, it's intuitive. And yet we don't do it. Yeah, Elizabeth, that that's such a great example. If I, if I were to give you, if I were to give you a Gantt chart that had a list of steps that I believed you needed to follow in order to get your part of the project done, and I were to tell you that based on my understanding of that Gantt chart, you should be able to get it done in two weeks or three weeks or a month, and you were to look at that Grant at that Gantt chart, basically look back at me and say, "Well, thank you. You've just told me how to do my job." First of all, that's extremely insulting, and second of all. I can't tell you how many times people have come back to me and, and said, if I follow your Gantt chart, it'll take me a month. But if I do it my way, I can get it done by tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, you, and, and the, the real miracle of, of uh, human free will is that when you turn it loose, you get much better results than the project manager could ever predict just by breaking everything down into little bits. Uh, and, um, I, and also, you got to stay flexible because as the project evolves and as breakthroughs occur, and you want those breakthroughs to occur, uh, people will be rewriting the schedule. You know, mm-hmm. a, a lot of project management is about abandoning the schedule you started with and accepting the one that emerges as your people get amazing things done for you. And then recognizing the fact that they're amazing, making sure that they know that you appreciate that. Uh, it's the it's fear that it's not fear that manages a project. It's disappointment more than anything. And mm. if you if you if you um, if you communicate to people that you're somebody who's worthy of not being let down, then that fear of letting you down, that desire to impress you with the work that they do, that becomes a huge motivator and and really propels people forward in surprisingly effective ways. Absolutely. And kind of to touch on something that you also mentioned earlier, that a lot of times we don't give people the context around why something is happening. It's it's broken down into such detail that it's very much about the how and not the why. And as you were saying, first of all, they might know a better how than you do. So you don't want to necessarily spend a lot of time and effort as somebody who doesn't do something full time, try to figure out the best way for somebody to do it when they might be able to come up with a better way themselves and and likely would enjoy that task. But so often I see when it comes to organizations, again, whether this is an external party, a consultant that they've brought in or an internal project, you have a senior leadership group who recognizes a problem or a need. And then they get together as a senior leadership group to go through multiple rounds of clearly articulating the problem and then looking out for potential solutions and then potentially engaging multiple vendors and then deciding on a project plan. And then they just drop into the organization. We're doing this. Hmm. And that's an entire journey that, that the leadership team has been on that nobody else in the organization has been on that path with them. And, that idea that you have of common purpose, right? And alignment, you've got one group that might be very aligned. 
have a common purpose, really understand why they're doing something and what it is that they're doing. And then they're, they, that might be why they feel the need to break things down so much instead of potentially just sharing the overall purpose, spending more time explaining the why, and then giving people freedom for the how. Does that make sense? It, it makes perfect sense. And you know, because this podcast is called Let's Talk Sales, <laughs> uh, if, you, if you really think about the selling process inside of a company as kind of a project that needs to be managed, I mean, if you take a project manager kind of view to it, mm-hmm. about the worst thing you can do when you're managing a sales team is to break down what you think is their job into how many calls a day they have to make or how many emails a day they have to send. And yet most of the time when managers sit down with sales, members of their sales team, it's almost always about the deconstructed elements of the work. How many calls did you make? How many people did you talk to? Um, And when you break a job down like that, you insult the person who does that work, you demotivate them, and you, in fact, remove all incentive in them from actually helping you get done what it is you actually need to get done. So so sales management in particular, I think, is something that calls for, um, I mean, our tagline with Brand and Culture Alignment is align and inspire. And mm. I have to keep pointing out to people that we work with. We, you know, we have a number of clients we work with and managers have this instinct that it should be a sign and require. We keep telling them it's not a sign and require, it's a line and inspire. It's a, it's a less direct approach but when you're dealing with human beings who have free will, it's a much more effective approach and it's worth learning how to do that because you'll get better results out of people if you do. Absolutely. And uh, something that I wanted to come back to as well, um, that just that uh, that you mentioned, you were working with creatives and engineers sometimes. Yeah. And to have those multiple constituencies, there may be approaches that would work for one or the other, but you can't just say, okay, I've got my one way that I'm going to manage this group and my other way to manage this group. And then we've got a project with both of them. And I'm going to try to talk to them differently to to have approaches that, that work for everybody that really focus on the fact that we're all just people. And we all want to contribute. We all want to be part of something. We all want to be satisfied with our job at the end of the day, at the end of the week and month. It, that seems to be just a much more logical way to approach it because you, you do have those different teams. What are the different things that you might have seen? Um, with when you had those um, teams of just creatives or or just engineers or, or kind of a mix of both? Well, you know, it, it, my projects, a, a lot of my projects involved converting, I, I think I might have mentioned this in our pre-interview, but for the audience, one of the projects that I managed was uh, the owned and operated stations at NBC needed to be converted from analog broadcasting, which was the old TV broadcast model, to digital broadcasting. There was an FCC requirement. It was uh, about 15 years ago. You might remember your TV sets, your old TV set stopped working and yeah. you needed to get a new Nobody TV ears set. anymore? Uh, yeah. And I mean, uh, those that transition was a major transition, not just for the broadcast engineering um, infrastructure part of a television station, but because the quality of the video went up, because the aspect ratio of the, of the video image changed, the sets had to be redesigned. The way we put makeup on on uh, talent had to be rethought. Uh, I mean, there, it was not just the people who managed the microphones and the cameras and the cables and the wires that were affected by this. It was the people who painted the sets. It was the people who lit the sets. It was the people who um, it was the people who directed the action for locally produced television programs. So everybody pretty much had to relearn uh, their uh, 
I don't want to say relearn. They already knew their jobs, but the nature of their jobs had changed because the nature of the product was changing. And there was no way that you could have imposed one discipline on everybody at a TV station that would respect everybody enough and all their individual roles in the process uh, that would get any of that work done anywhere near on time and under budget and on budget. The only way it would happen is if you got everybody to fall in love with this version two of the TV station they worked for so that they were so in love with it, they would be willing to put all their other work aside and concentrate on that and kill, essentially, to make sure that they got it done when they needed to get it done. And it was one miracle after another. There were uh, more than a dozen stations involved, and a lot of them were occurring concurrently, and they weren't communicating with each other, so they weren't, didn't have a whole lot of opportunity to learn from each other. Every one of the solutions we got was a bespoke, a bespoke solution for that particular organization. And all the miracles came from the people in the organization. None of them came from me. I mean, if I, if I were responsible for anything, it was just making it possible for everybody to do what they did and making sure I thanked them for it when they, when they got it done. And it's not the GE way, I have to say. And I had a lot of pushback from traditional managers throughout the entire process, wondering why I wasn't giving them Gantt charts and PERT charts, you know, the way they'd normally gotten them. But, uh, but they liked the results, I have to tell you. And it was all because you trust human beings and human beings will do amazing things for you. Something that you've touched on a couple of times, and I don't want this to, to get lost in everything else that you're saying, you made sure to give people credit. And the, you could have uh, an excellently run project where you really did solicit um, input and participation from everybody and they really stepped up and they came up with ideas. But all it takes is one time that they did that and they didn't get the credit for them not to be willing to necessarily do that again, mm. at least for that same person. And and that idea of um, just really, you know, soliciting input in a in a way that respects people, that lets them know that you you respect them as individuals, you you have expectations of them, you're holding them to a standard, um, and then following it on following it up on the back end with the affirmation, with the acknowledgement internally, with the credit that you're giving, it, to me, that that's part of it. It's a closed loop. And, and you really have to make sure to close that loop as opposed to just kind of leave it open. It, have you seen situations where, um, or if you have any examples of where you've really seen that um, be important? Plenty. I mean, you, uh, 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 you know, I can think of a while I was managing these projects, other people were managing different projects all around me. And one of one of the weird adverse effects uh, of the way I approached the way we were doing our work, one of the weird adverse effects that is everybody wanted to be on our project team and nobody wanted to be on any of the others. And uh, so a lot of people were complaining that we were siphoning talent away from them. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, because after all, there were three or four other things that needed to be done, too. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I would catch a little bit of heat for that. I mean, every now and then it would come up in a meeting that I've got my people, my people are doing everything for Al and they're not doing anything for me. And, uh, and, and, and so my argument back to them would be, well, what do you want me to do about that? I mean, if they don't love what they're doing for you, but they love what they're doing for me, then whose fault is that? What's, <laughs> what's wrong here? You know, now, I never really said that out loud because a lot of those people were clients of mine and I, I didn't want to I didn't want to insult them beyond I didn't want to insult them to the point where they fired me. But but that I saw that happen a lot. And, and it's an amazing miracle of humanity 
that when people really love doing something, they'll put everything aside to get that done. And that's the secret of getting anything done. And the only way that ever would have worked is if at the end of the day, every individual who contributed got credit for their contributions. And it would never have worked if I would have been the guy bragging about the work I did in making them do what needed to be done, because I never did. All I ever did was thank them for the work they did out of the goodness of their hearts because they loved what it was we were working on together. Mm-hmm. And when people see that you did that for the last project, that's something that spreads and they know that they can trust you to to work on another project with them or to you know invite a peer that um, that they work with to participate and to to give you the good ideas and not hold them for themselves. And, and that is how I stayed out of the general electric sausage machine for 15 years as a consultant there. <laughs> All right. Well, we've we've gotten a lot into the reason why people need to align on a common purpose. And I think we've, we've mentioned some of the best practices and some of the how, but I know that you have a consistent process that you follow to ensure that, that leaders are able to drive this alignment and inspiration to, to drive performance. So I'd love it if you could um, maybe share some best practices for somebody who might be interested in, in taking this on. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm really glad you asked that question, and it's funny how much of it, how much of what we do, we give an awful lot of what we do away because, in my mind anyway, it's common sense. Although for a lot of people, I think it's something they've never heard before. So, thanks for this opportunity. We start every project exactly the same way. Every conversation we have with a client, and every initial conversation we have with every client we work with, we do this consistently over and over again. We start by asking one question of everyone. So give me a team or a group of people that are working together on something. And my first step consistently and reliably is to ask them what we call the incorporating question. Here is the incorporating question. I'm saying it, it's really more like a prayer, Elizabeth, than, a, than just a question. And every word has been very carefully studied and researched and every word is important. So here it is. Imagine this entire team as though it were a single person doing its best work on its best day to keep all its promises and achieve all its goals. So in your mind, take this whole group of people, a TV station or a small business or a a department in a company, let's say quality control, take this whole group of people that, that are working together to do something and they're working in common on this thing. Take that whole team and imagine it were a single person doing its best work on its best day to keep every promise it makes and to achieve all its goals. The question is, what would that person be like? Mm. If I met them at a party, what would they be wearing? What would their body language look like? Would they be, uh, would they be reserved? Would they be outgoing? Would they be, I want, I want everybody on this team to describe for me who they believe they are collectively if I were to meet them somewhere at a party. And what we found in our research is the closer everybody's answers are together, the more similarly they describe that ideal, the more on the same page they are with each other, the more likely they are singing from the same sheet of music or rowing in the same direction, drinking the same Kool-Aid. And the further apart those answers are, the more likely they are to be operating in silos, working independently, often at cross purposes the less aligned their waveforms are so that the energies overlap with each other in destructive ways and they end up flattening the results because of the conflicts that occur. 
And uh, so that incorporating question is how we start every engagement. And if you were doing this yourself for your team, and this is a great way, by the way, to conduct a Zoom meeting, the next time you get everybody together on a Zoom call, no matter where they are, try this. Think about our whole team, everything about us, as though we were a single person doing our best work on our best day to keep all our promises and achieve all our goals. Take a minute or two to think about that and then start offering answers for that question. What words describe this person? And bring up the whiteboard on the Zoom call and start write, writing down the words you get. Everybody's answers are equally valuable. Everybody's answers are equally valid. Whether they just started with the company yesterday or they've been here for 35 years, no matter what their background might be, no matter what uh, race, gender they might be, everybody is equally valuable in answering that question. And all those answers add up to who we are. When we all sit down and discuss those answers with each other and refine our answers, we come together in ways that uh, are remarkable and amazing, that overcome a lot of ego and eliminate a lot of hidden conflict. Uh, and make everybody feel better about what it is they do collectively with everybody else. So that's, that's our first step. That's that's a big first step. I can see how in in some organizations and in some teams, that might be a, a relatively easy question to answer. But I can see in, I don't know if it's maybe based on the kind of organization, but let's say I, I work for an IT consulting company. Mm -hmm. And I am a project manager and I work with our clients. And then I'm, I'm working on a project with somebody who purchases technology systems for us. How okay. can you, what do you do to generate that alignment if they don't have it? Because it, first of all, I'd imagine, I guess I've got two questions here, so we, we can take them in order. But first of all, I could see some people not really knowing how to answer that question. Or, or being maybe hesitant to answer that question. And then second, I could see them having wildly different answers, which is good to know, but then leads to, I would imagine, a next step. So sure. let's, let's take both of those if possible. Well, let, let, me, let me give it to you uh, by way of an example with a client we worked with a couple of years ago that was uh, kind of a really good example of exactly that. We were called in to uh, the quality control department of a pretty well-known amusement park. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, that amusement park quality control department was having internal conflict issues. Now, when your quality control department at an amusement park is having difficulties communicating with each other, <laughs> everybody who goes to the amusement park is, whether they know it or not, and generally they won't know it, they're kind of at risk. Mm -hmm. Because the quality control department's job at an amusement park is to make sure that every one of the attractions is safe and works properly. It functions correctly and is maintained correctly. So it was an issue for them, and they really needed help working that out. We sat down, and we we didn't ask about the amusement park. We just sat down with just the quality control department and asked them, who is the quality control department when it's doing its best work on its best day? What is that person like? What we got back were a lot of very divergent answers. Some people were adamant that the quality control department was about creative solutions outside the box thinking. And mm -hmm. other people were adamant that quality control really is not about that at all. In fact, it's about crossing your T's, dotting your I's, and making sure you don't make any mistakes. Mm -hmm. Now, in that meeting, everybody heard what everybody said. The, the more creative people made the point to the engineers that whatever it is you learn in the engineering work you do has to be presented to management in a creative way in order to influence policy. 
That's what the creative people contributed. The creative people also heard that the engineers can't just be making things up and presenting <laughs> to management. They have to be presenting empirically derived data based on research that they've done. So that conversation ultimately led to the group working together using their individual gifts, all focused on one outcome. Who we are as a quality control team here is primarily number one engineering. That's the job. But secondly, our number two component in our collective personality is about offering creative solutions, thinking outside the box, and every now and then making a recommendation to management that they may not expect, not just reporting facts, but also reporting feelings and ideas. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, the result of that is an awful lot of the uh, uh, conflicts, especially among senior people in the quality control team, went away because now everybody really understood each other and all their individual points of view. So, so we solved your communication problem. And that worked so well that the amusement park guy said, could you do that for our executive leadership team? So we did. What we found is that the amusement park is about making sure that when people and their families come, they have an exciting, adventurous experience that they completely enjoyed and that no two visits to the park are ever exactly the same because we want people to come back. And... Yes, of course, all the attractions are safe. We don't necessarily put on our brochure, visit our park and we promise you won't die today. That's not exactly <laughs> a selling point, but it's implicit in that. And when, when we took the two groups and put them together, the fun of it was the quality control team. Now, this is our third step. What is it now, now that we understand who we are when we're doing our best work on our best day, what two or three things about ourselves individually can we change? Now, think about that. What we've done is created a role model. We've painted a picture of a person who collectively represents all of us. It's a virtual person. It's not any one of us. It's somebody that we all want to be more like. So Mm. last step in our process, the subsequent steps in our process is now that we've articulated that role model, what two or three things does that role model teach me? What what do I learn from that role model? How do I change what I do on a day-to-day basis to be more like that role model? And the miracle that came out of that was, and frankly, Elizabeth, this was a big deal to them. Not everybody on the executive leadership team was willing to make the commitment to sit in on the regular meetings that the quality control team has. Mm -hmm. But six of them did. Six of the 18 members of the executive leadership team said, we promise beginning next month that on a rotating basis, we'll attend the meetings to get a better understanding of what the quality control people do because we don't listen to them enough. And the quality control people, for their part, not everybody, because not everybody in quality control is uh, a people person. I mean, a lot of them are are pure engineers. But five of them, and there are about 20 people on this team, five of them said, when the season starts, we'll go out onto the field and we'll find families. We'll bring Mm -hmm. a clipboard. That's quality control. We'll sit down with the families and we'll ask them what it is about their uh, the, the park experience that they enjoy the most. And what they think we can do as a park to help them enjoy it more the next time they come back. So we had quality quality control people picking up some of the role model of the park's behaviors and emulating it. And we had the executives who ran the park borrowing from some of the quality control team's role model and emulating that and becoming more engineering oriented. And as a result of it, those two teams worked together much more effectively. Because it was their idea, not because it was ours. 
That's that's such a wonderful story, and I it, it really just made this come to life for me because when when you talk about the idea between um, we're all about creative solutions versus we're all about dotting i's and crossing t's, I hear that a lot between sales and delivery, mm-hmm. where sales feels like. What, what I'm supposed to be doing, what our department is for, is going out into the world and creating custom solutions with and for our clients. And we need to listen to them. We need to start with just a blank sheet of paper and come up with a custom solution that is perfect for their needs. And that's what it takes to close the deal. And that's why I have my job. And then we hear from delivery teams, what on earth are you talking about? We have five things that we sell. And you are just figuring out which of those five things somebody needs to buy. Right. And as you said, it's it's a different vision of who who the overall organization is, as well as each department, each team's key function. Because if you view your function as coming up with creative solutions and the other team views their function as executing on clearly defined projects, there can be ways to help those align. But it, it can also just be, oh... <laughs> I didn't realize that that was that that was the message that that came out, and um, we need to figure out, you know, is there one of those two that we need to actually land on? I would imagine sometimes it's about developing a, a system, a process, a best way for those two imaginary people to work best together and still stay kind of who they are, and then sometimes it's about that person is not actually, you know, that that that. That imaginary person that's a department that's actually not what what we need. I know that was a very rambly sort of question statement, but does that make sense? And, and is that it, something that you see? It, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, I'll, I'll pick up on that. And I, I, I want to try to respect it uh, because uh, I think you put an awful lot into that. I think these are things you've seen in your life and in your, in your work life. And so let's let's talk about originally we talked about how every now and then uh, we have this tendency to deconstruct the process, break it down into its parts. Often when we do that, we do a tremendous disservice to the to the whole <laughs> by breaking it down into parts because those parts that we broke it down into don't really ever, hardly ever add up to the whole that we broke down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so that whole idea, that idea that everything we do is uh, more important than any of the individual things we do means that if there's a role target, we call it a role target, by the way, not a role model, but a role target. Mm-hmm. If there's a role target that represents marketing when it's doing its best work on its best day, and there's a role target that represents sales, and it would be different when it's doing its best work on its best day. And there's a role target that represents delivery, the people that actually deliver the services and interface with the customers, the people who do the actual client work. If there are three separate role targets that are different from each from each other, those three separate role targets are the heart and soul of this whole corporation. And those three role targets have to be able to communicate with each other and work together in order to create a healthy whole. So if you can imagine it, for every department inside of a company, there's a role target that represents the best of it. If we can bring that out and articulate it and show how all those role targets get together at the Christmas party every year and celebrate what a wonderful time they had that year, working together, getting everything done on behalf of the client, we've just eliminated all the reasons why we fight with each other in a company. Mm. That that really makes sense. And that what what I'm hearing from that is, first of all, and and I'm just a, I'm a very process oriented person, so I tend to, to break things down in that way. But first of all, you're figuring out again. You've got these these role targets. You're not getting caught up in Bob doesn't get along with Sue, <laughs> and Never. they have you know personality conflicts. It's it's he just doesn't like her. It's it's more 
the, the marketing department and the sales department or the sales department and the delivery department. Overall, you're, you're, you're elevating things to a big picture. And then, as you said, these role targets, they, they might not, in, in the way that they exist, they might not have a perfect flow one to the other. But if you figure out what their best process is on their best day and they're getting their best work done, is it, you know, back to my example, as a sales team, you can be creative and we want you to be creative, but you need to answer these 10 questions. And you have to scope out a project using this specific template so that we actually are able to implement it. And maybe there's an approval process that's part of it. And so this function, this role, the sales role is going to work with the delivery role in such a way that both of them feel good about what they're doing. And they're they're enabling each other to be successful as opposed to just butting heads. And, and so it's it's really smoothing out a lot of that friction in a in a personal way that's not individual, if that makes sense. And that that seems to really, um, really solve a lot of the problems that you see when you have that interdepartmental communication, because it often does get assigned at an individual level. Um, and, and that makes it, I think, even more difficult to to make progress. It, it almost always does. And, you know, w- one of the things we pride ourselves in with uh, the BCAT Brand and Culture Alignment Toolkit is that we never really ever actually discuss the nature of the work anybody does. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't care. I mean, we will find out, no doubt about it, what it is you do for a living because your job content will come up in the conversations and it should. Uh, but we're not there to help you do it more efficiently or do it more effectively or spend less money doing it. That's some other consultant. Our job is to try to identify the targets of love and I, you know, I'm, I'm becoming more comfortable using that word as it relates to work because I think a lot of people are feeling we, we we're living in an age now, Elizabeth, where people are quitting their jobs left and right because not because COVID is making them do it. COVID mm-hmm. isn't causing this great resignation we're in the middle of. COVID has shined a light on something that has existed in in business for decades. Mm-hmm. People don't feel fulfilled by the work they do. They don't feel as though the work they do adds up to anything that makes a difference to anybody. They just feel like all they do is collect a paycheck, and they're grateful for that. But but the frustration builds and builds and builds, and finally you get to something like COVID, and people just make a fundamental decision. I'm not going to work here anymore. I want to I go someplace where the work I do matters. And that really does introduce that whole idea of love. I need to love what I do. And I need to feel as though I'm loved because of what I do. Mm. So when we talk about role targets, we're talking about the role target for any department is manifestly a virtual person who loves what that department does. And more importantly, loves doing it, him or herself, every day. And that love becomes infectious. And the people in the department, when they're emulating that role target, are really just absorbing that love and picking up on that and learning to love what the role target loves. So when you talk about Bob and Sue and and Joe and Anne not getting along with each other individually, what cures that problem really is helicoptering them up over whatever it is they're arguing about, getting them to look at that role target who always loves all other role targets throughout the company. (laughs) That's by definition. The role targets are not allowed to argue with each other for no reason. They can have differences of opinion. But the goal is always to, without ego and without ownership, come up with a solution that works for all of us. That's what our role targets do. That's what a role target is. And if I feel as though I'm disappointing my role, my departmental role target by behaving the way I am, 
well, that becomes a self-coaching issue. And a mm-hmm. lot of people, a lot of people, when they emulate the role target, nobody ever says, well, I'm going to take the ego of the role target and emulate that. Nobody ever does. I mean, they never pick anything bad the role target might do. They always pick only the good things they do. And the result of that is everybody feels safe, which is one of the Google points for creating an effective team. Mm-hmm. They don't feel as though they're going to be criticized. They don't feel as though they're going to be attacked. And they feel as though if they offer an idea, everybody else is going to want to listen to it. I mean, they may never adopt it. It may not be a great idea, but they'll never blame you for offering the idea. And you'll never be shamed because you offered the idea. And that, that's what just makes it possible for if you've got a company of 30,000 employees and all 30,000 of them ought to be working toward your company's goals, whatever that might be, every day. And if they can see that role target, that North Star, we call it that often, that North Star that represents the ideal of behavior that 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 shines a positive light on all of us. I mean, that role target, that thing, that that, that, that virtual person that identifies all of General Electric and what GE means to the world. If I can see that up there and I can navigate the little boat I'm in inside my career toward that North Star, then that's how I know I'm rowing with everybody else in the same direction and not just in the same direction. I mean, it's common to hear people say things like it's important that we're all singing from the same song sheet. Well, partly, yeah, but we also have to be singing songs that our customers are willing to buy tickets to listen to. Mm-hmm. It's not enough just to be singing from the same sheet of music. We have to be singing the right music. It's not enough to be rowing in the same direction with each other. We have to be rowing in the right direction. And, um, uh, Everything about brand and culture alignment is about speaking to the heart of the employee so that they envision this North Star that represents the best of themselves. And uh, we're amazed consistently at how willing even some of the most hardened senior people uh, are, are um, uh, willing to embrace change because it's their idea, not ours. We, we never impose change on people. I, I wanted to surface something that that I've discovered in this conversation, and I feel that um, that our listeners might might be concerned and might be thinking, okay, well, an amusement park, yeah, that's fun. Um, you know, a, a major media company and, and transforming things, that's a big deal. But my company is is we, we already have maybe a mission. We we already have something that we're connected to, or it's not relevant for us. And you think of the job that we would all think has the most inherent purpose is maybe nursing or working in the medical field. And you look right now at the issues with nurses leaving the field. You can you can have a job that's all about a purpose. And if you don't feel that connection to it, if you don't feel the respect and the care um, that you need, you that that doesn't work out. You know, if you don't feel like you're part of that that role target, if you don't feel like the the work that you do is is contributing to something bigger, it it it's not going to work out. And so it's still all about as an organization, as a team, having that alignment, having that inspiration, and and crediting and respecting people, but also. You know, if you think about how somebody in the most caring profession can can feel disconnected from that purpose, imagine how much worse and how much more difficult it could be if somebody views their job as I push buttons, I I move a thing from this place to this other place, <laughs> and 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 how how much more important it is in those situations actually to to identify what the purpose might be. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and share a little bit of arithmetic with with you because. Uh, uh... 
one of the articles we wrote uh, in support of the work we do was a was a cute little article on the arithmetic, the mathematics of free will. Okay. Mm. Now you you everybody owns an object, a, a cell phone or a or a, a crockpot. Everybody owns an object where the management of the, of the object is you expect it to do something when you plug it in or when you turn it on, you expect it to perform some function, but there's a non-zero probability. There's a, a possibility that it might fail. It may not work at all, or it might not cook at the right temperature, or if you if you own a cell phone, the call might drop, or you may not be able to get access to a Wi-Fi. I mean, there are a lot of things that can go wrong with an object, and so you're satisfaction with that object is going to be a function of the probability that it meets your expectations consistently, you know, minus the probability that it'll let you down. It'll disappoint you. And mm-hmm. the way you manage inanimate objects, and this is classic Six Sigma, is by taking that error term, that second probability, the probability that it'll disappoint, and trying to squeeze it down with rigor and structure. I want to lower the probability that you'll disappoint me. And so all of my management techniques are around punishing it wherever I see it um, and trying to make it go away wherever I possibly can. Does that make sense? That, okay. that really does. That's management. Now, leadership is different because people are not inanimate objects. People behave differently. A person is, is going to be a function of, your satisfaction with a person is going to be a function of, how often does this person do what is expected of them? It's kind of like an inanimate object. And if you're managing that person, then you're going to increase uh, the number of rules you've got, and you're going to increase the structure, and you're become, going to become more rigid because you want to push down that probability that they'll disappoint you. Right? You'll want to do that the way you'd manage a cell phone. But humans, unlike cell phones, have a second probability, a probability that they'll surprise you by doing amazing things that you never asked them to do, but that needed to be done. And the problem with management techniques and rigor and Six Sigma often is that when you're managing that first error term, the probability that you'll disappoint me, by the same token that I'm pushing that down, I'm also suppressing that second term, the probability that you'll amaze me. Does that make sense? That really does. And it it speaks to, I think, if you even take it a, a, a step further, if you were to develop a product that was 100% perfect all the time and had a 0% error rate, mm-hmm. the total functionality is going to be very limited. It's only going to be what I expect it to be. Hammer. I mean, yeah. Hammers. <laughs> Right. And all it needs to do is hammer and it it can't really fail, I guess, unless it breaks or something, but it's a hammer. A cell phone has to do a whole lot more things than a hammer does. And if, if you're holding people to the standard of you're a hammer versus you're, you're a complex, you know, you're a complex individual, even more complicated than a cell phone. There's a lot different in terms of um, just the, the sheer potential that might exist. And, and there's, I'll just assert, with based on no evidence, there is no super complex system that has a zero percent error rate, because complexity, by its very nature, um, drives you know mistakes yeah. that might happen, and right. you have to have some tolerance for an appropriate level of risk if you're going to achieve uh, the result, the benefit that you can get from having complexity involved. I, you're not, you know, again, hammer. <laughs> by 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 traditional management standards, Albert Einstein was an error. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, everything that he did was absolutely erroneous, totally erroneous. It was decades before people figured out he was right. And they fought him 
for for a long time. It took a long time. Didn't even win his Nobel Prize for for the for he won his Nobel Prize for explaining Brownian motion. He didn't even win for the amazing things he did. He won for something else. The amazing things he did, people fought. I mean, they actually argued against it, said it couldn't be possible. And he was an error term. He's a classic example of that. All the people that I ever worked with on any project who did amazing things, those amazing things were never part of the original project plan ever. They were never there in the original project plan. I never, there was never a project plan that ever said that Elizabeth today is going to do something incredible. On on February 17th, she's going to do something amazing. You can't plan for something <laughs> like that. But if I manage Elizabeth the way I manage a hammer, I can absolutely guarantee you that she'll never do anything incredible because there won't be any incentive for her to do it. Absolutely. No space, no, no incentive, no motivation. Yeah, and, um, so, a... and so your projects don't get done or they take twice as long or they cost four times as much to get done. <laughs> and that's because they got humans in them and you, you can't absolutely. manage humans the way you manage hammers. Yeah. And you know, the, the getting down to kind of dollars and cents, people quit. <laughs> People uh, underperform people, you know, people will, it's very easy to live down to expectations. (laughs) If somebody says you have three months to do something and you know, you can do it in two weeks or you can do it in one day, you can do anything you want to do for the first three months. And then the very last day that it's due scramble and get it done because that's, that's the expectation that was created versus if, if you got them excited to participate, to do their part, because that's going to drive the next step that they're not involved in and, and move this, this thing forward, they're going to come back in a day and a half and say, I'm done. And you you saved three months right there. That's that, you know, actually you just, you just described the cure for procrastination. And, uh, you know, I mean, because the, the most projects fail, not because they don't finish, they fail because they never actually got started. And, uh, you know, when you really look at a project that's floundering, you can't really identify that moment at which actually people started working on it. They're still just not working on it. They're going to the meetings. They're reporting progress often. A lot of it is made up. But the, but getting the project started is nine-tenths of the battle, not finishing it, but getting it launched in the first place. Is you need to get the people on a project addicted to small victories mm. very early on. And that addiction becomes something that they work on. Um, like, like children who bring artwork back from school and then mom or dad uses a magnet to put them on the refrigerator. You know, mm-hmm. the, more, the more of that you do at home, the more amazing things your kid will do at school and bring home to you. Always. And that whole idea that I'm impressing mom and dad, that there's this higher authority, there's a role target that I want to emulate, and I want that role target's approval. That's what motivates children to become better versions of themselves. And, you know, we haven't even talked about that because that really sits at the core of all this. Absolutely. Back to the great resignation. The reason why people want to come to work for you is the same reason why people want to buy the things you sell. They want to work for you and they want to buy the things you sell because they believe that those choices will make them better versions of themselves. Everybody throughout their lives is looking really to become a better version of themselves. That's what they're, that's why they buy things. That's why they work for people. So if you want to solve the great resignation problem, you need to do that by articulating a compelling, better version of self that your organization represents to a new hire. And you've got to articulate that in the onboarding process from the very first moment. If all you do when you hire somebody is give them a cubicle and a telephone and walk (laughs) away from them and don't go back and check on them again in a week, 
there's a pretty good chance in today's economy they won't be there in a week. They'll go find someplace else. That's So Who's where's that problem coming from? It's actually coming from you because you think people are hammers. Absolutely. And I, I love that you that you brought this back to the example of parents, because those are people that you want to to impress as a child in a healthy relationship because, you know, they love you and they support you. And mm-hmm. just that idea, again, of not being afraid to use the word love and to have a target of love and to have a role target that you aspire to be because it, it's exciting to you, because it's compelling to you, because it's motivational to you, that's uh, a whole lot more engaging than fear or um, resignation in the, in the you know, just settling for it way, not the quitting way. <laughs> and sure. all of the different ways that we that we work with people and that we that we engage people or, or don't engage them that are not driving that that excitement, that wonder, that that motivation to to do the next thing. And that example of you know somebody that you love and that you respect and that you that you look up to, having it be an abstract role target hmm. takes it from the idea that it has to be my manager. And your manager is an individual, and hopefully they are also aspiring to be very well aligned to that role target, but they're not going to be perfect. And having that that overarching um, role target that you can aspire to gives potential for more, um, for, for, you know, better alignment, better support that you might feel as an individual. You know, and, and that is another point. We're talking about managers and departments inside of companies all the time. And it's a pretty common experience and, and pretty well known now that people don't really quit the companies they work for. They quit the manager they report to. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big reason why people quit. That's a big, a big, a big red flag is it often, I mean, I think the average person gets promoted to a management position somewhere in their mid thirties. The first opportunity they ever have to go to any leadership training is when they're in their mid forties. So there's a huge 10 year gap between getting the job of manager and actually knowing how to do it based on anything anybody trains you to do. So, and, and this is such an important point. It's, and, and that's why the role target concept becomes so important. Well, I think that's just such a great way to end this. Thank you so, so much for um, for everything that you've shared with us. I'm looking at the clock and realizing I could probably keep talking to you for hours, but we should wind down. So one question I always like to ask our guests is, do you have any resources that you would recommend to our listeners? It can be about the topic we've been discussing today or just something else that's that's brought you um, a sense of discovery or um, or joy. Well, actually, uh, thank you, Elizabeth, for asking that question. There, there are a couple of. First of all, we conduct for our for our purposes. We conduct a, a regular webinar. Uh, we generally do this once a month. The next one is March eighth, twenty twenty two. But uh, if you go to our website, getbcat.com slash webinar, you can always sign up for the next one. And and uh, the webinar generally is introduced by somebody who is in themselves a resource for culture or brand alignment. Uh, And then they introduce us and we just explain how our process works. So that's certainly one place. We also have a blog on our website at getbcat.com that has instructions on how to ask being a corporating question and uh, kind of a walkthrough on how to use it to uh, manage a group or a team to conduct a Zoom meeting, kind of a transformative Zoom meeting. Uh, so there's that. And, uh, and I'm reachable uh, by uh, al.cini at al.cini at getbcat, G-E-T-B-C-A-T dot com. Uh, happy to answer any questions and hop on a call with anybody who'd like to talk. Wonderful. 
Well, I really, really appreciate your time today. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with, with our listeners. Elizabeth, thank you. Appreciate it. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything that Al and I have been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod336. As a reminder, if you subscribe to the show, you get every new episode as soon as it goes live. You can subscribe for free wherever it is that you're listening right now. If you enjoyed the show today, please recommend us to a friend. That is the best way to help more people discover it. We love any feedback that you have for us. You can leave us ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or your other player of choice. Or email us if you've got feedback, if you've got questions, if you've got guest suggestions, podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook and the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com slash insights. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success. Happy selling.